we are now ready to analyze the statements of Patanjali in his fourth and last chapter of the Yoga Sutra. The last chapter is relatively short when compared to the others. It counts all in all just 34 sutras, unlike the previous one, which was having 52 sutras. And the last chapter is traditionally called Kaivalya Pada, the chapter on Kaivalya. As explained in the last, in the previous lecture, Kaivalya is a word which means isolation, insulation. It is a word which Patanjali uses to define the condition of pure spirit when enlightened, like out of this world, isolated, insulated from karma and from all the tribulations of samsara and manifestation. It is a word which is strictly of a Vedantic type and of a classical yoga type. The Tantric yoga does not look upon the ultimate state of realization in this way, as said so many times, and considers that this Kaivalya is only a temporary stage, it's just an instrument of work for seeing the other side of things, and then one still has to reach to a total balance of the emptiness and fullness of the non-manifestation and manifestation. And uh, therefore, in the Tantric tradition, the final accomplishment would never be called Kaivalya, because Shiva is not Kaivalya, isolated from the environment, on the contrary. And the first sutra in this chapter, this chapter the first sutra starts actually talking about the mind and you are going to see that before talking about Kaivalya Patanjali speaks Kaivalya proper Patanjali speaks a lot about the mind therefore to be able to define what this spiritual state is still Patanjali has to speak a lot about the buffer zone it's like we are having three levels of existence one level of existence is the first five chakras and that represents the five elements and the universe. It could be called life. Then the next level is Ajna chakra and that represents mind. It could be called intelligence. And then the last level is the level of the transcendental consciousness that could be called pure consciousness and that is the level again of pure existence. And to be able to describe the connection, or in his case, the liberation, the cutting off of the consciousness from the universe, from life, Patanjali has to use this twilight zone, which is between consciousness and life, which is one of the higher levels of Prakriti. So technically speaking, it's part of the life domain, it's part of the cosmic egg, it's part of the nature of the samsara, of the maya, of prakriti, and which is mind itself. Mind is the transition zone between which concludes manifestation, turns into an ocean of mind, and then mind itself migrates in a transcendent consciousness, or rather, we could say it is transcended by the pure transcendent consciousness. That is why, paradoxically, but not entirely because 
Patanjali is an author who is so strong on Ajna Chakra and insists so much on Ajna Chakra and we could consider that the Yoga Sutra of Patanjali is to a large extent a text of Yoga of Agnya Chakra of the third eye it's a text of Raja Yoga of the Yoga of the mind and therefore Patanjali is bound by his own profile by his own typology to look upon all things through the mind through the filter of the mind and therefore even his Kaivalya makes no exception when looking at Kaivalya which is supposed to be the void of Sahasrara of the crown chakra Patanjali nevertheless connects it via Agnya chakra because Agnya chakra is the daily bread Agnya Chakra is the breath of life for Patanjali for his analysis. And the first sutra with which this impressive final chapter starts is a sutra which is very abrupt and has given rise to lots of commentaries and even arguments. And the first sutra says the Siddhis and actually it refers to various accomplishments as you are going to see. Uh, it simply uses the Sanskrit word, the Siddhis. The Siddhis are born by means such as, by means of, and he gives a list of five, birth, herbs, mantras, austerities, or samadhi. He doesn't literally use the word mantra, he uses a word which means formulas, but which is totally identifiable with mantras. He also does not use the word tapas as such, but he uses a Sanskrit equivalent which is meant to mean austerities. So, first of all, wait a second. We are in the chapter about Kaivalya. Why would Patanjali suddenly speak in the chapter about Kaivalya about Siddhis? We can understand that Patanjali spoke about Siddhis in the chapter number 3, because the chapter number 3 was about Vibhuti, and therefore it was about paranormal elements and there Patanjali described mm, several forms some 30 something forms of Samyama if you do Samyama on this if you do Samyama upon that if you do Samyama like this if you do Samyama like that then you are going to obtain this and that but now we are supposed to talk about Kaivalya why don't we just drop all these CDs and Samyama and this actually as you remember in the last sutras of chapter number 3, Patanjali slowly, slowly made a transition from lower siddhis, such as uh, if you do samyama on the shape of your body or something, you become invisible and such other uh, statements. And he has made a transition towards very spiritual phenomena. And he spoke about the samyama on time, on the moment of time, on the succession and thus understanding the law of evolution of things and thus acquiring the ultimate knowledge by which ultimate knowledge one understands the ultimate identity of people, objects and by this ultimate knowledge one gets actually the spiritual realization. And therefore Patanjali faithful to his Agnya Chakra view of the universe, Patanjali says, well, ultimately speaking, the Samadhi, the state of Kaivalya, the spiritual realization, is also 
a sort of a city. It's like the ultimate city. It's the, the transcendent city. It's the city of all cities. It's the best Samyama. It's the ultimate Samyama. It's like when you take Samyama to perfection and on the highest level, then basically that becomes Samadhi, that becomes what he calls it Kaivalya. And that's why Patanjali was very smart to in include even the spiritual realization as like the cherry on top of the cake, as kind of the ultimate level of Samyama, as the ultimate level of Siddhi, if you prefer. And that's why now he can link it, he can preserve a continuity, he can still speak about the mind, because the mind is like a bridge that you cross from the universe, the lower five chakras, to the pure consciousness, the seventh level of the being. And therefore, he starts by talking about the cities in general, and of course you realize that sooner or later he is going to narrow the field and focus upon the one which concerns him right now. And the one which concerns him right now is the ultimate city, the city of spiritual realization. But until then he starts with a general statement, which is a great analysis after all. And he says when you look upon cities in general, those cities are born by means of birth, herbs, mantras, austerities, or samadhi itself. Actually, when he uses the word samadhi, all the fundamental commentators, such as Vyasa and others, they claim that the word samadhi is clearly used here as samyama. It means the cities are born, by means of birth, herbs, mantras, tapas, and samyama, which is precisely what the previous chapter kept describing in detail and so lavishly. And therefore, the word samadhi is used here in a bit of a twisted way. He, technically speaking, if you would have wanted to be really sharp, he would have used samyama. But as many of you know, and the others who don't find out, uh, Sanskrit is a very ambiguous, ambivalent, poetic, multiple level type of language and therefore the, these two words Sam Adi and Sam Yama they are having the same root and they can be used uh, alternatively especially when Samadhi is a sort of ultimate Samyama the highest type of Samyama when you do Samyama on the Supreme Self then that samyama becomes samadhi automatically and even the high levels of samadhi. This statement basically says that different paranormal abilities, even spiritual high abilities, are the results or can be the result of the following five elements. Birth, which means some people can be born with paranormal abilities. Some people are born with clairvoyance and they didn't practice in this lifetime a single minute of yoga or anything equivalent to produce it. Some people are born with the capacity to bend spoons a la Uri Geller. Some people are born with other and other capacities. Some of them slightly paranormal, some of them severely paranormal. Also, 
please do not forget that birth gives rise to altered states of consciousness. Ma Ananda Mai was born not with the city of clairvoyance, but with the city of Samadhi. It came from birth. She claims in the interview which she gave to Paramahamsa Yogananda that even when she was two years old, she was having states of Samadhi. She was enlightened even as a two-year-old child. The same thing can be said about the late Jiddu Krishnamurti. Jiddu Krishnamurti was identified at the age of six by the seekers, by the aspirants from the Theosophical House, and this boy who was six years old was having states of ecstasy. Even Ramakrishna Paramahamsa, who practiced very seriously in his life and did solid sadhana, nevertheless being at origin an avatara, being at uh, origin a super advanced, a divine soul, Ramakrishna had his first state of samadhi at the age of seven, lifting his head up and looking at a flock of storks flying on the background of purple-gray clouds, storm clouds, monsoon clouds. And therefore, we see in the situation, in the cases of many people, that their spiritual realization was like brought by birth. They have it from birth. They came with it from a previous time. That's not the only way in which it happens. And we can look at many others, such as Yogananda, Shivananda, Sarada Devi, and so many others, who did not have it from birth. And in this life, they performed more or less serious practice to make it come forth. So birth is one way through which things come. Herbs is a very debated one. That's the one which produces most uh, scandalous comments because, of course, here Patanjali seems to involve psychedelics, psychoactive substances. Aushadi, Rasayana, and all sorts of other herbal products, very well known in Ayurveda, very well known in other traditions, Tibetan medicine a little bit, and others. Some of them known in the tantric alchemy, in the hatha yogic alchemy, like the Natsampradaya. And uh, here, of course, this is a subject of wonder. And it is, of course, a subject of wonder, first of all, because it's a subject of misunderstanding. Many people had the tendency of thinking that, okay, so there, there exists a sort of psychedelic path to enlightenment. This is a very, very highly debatable subject because it would automatically imply or give the feeling to some people that you can cheat, that you don't need to actually do serious practice, you are just smoking some dope or I don't know what, and you are going to get into some high state of consciousness. This is a subject which I approach in many lectures and which I have to answer in many late night evenings because almost every month we have people who come from drugs and smoking dope and others and they wonder if their old customs can be applied while they are in yoga and also it's something which I comment when I hold Tantra workshops in the Tantra One workshop I have a small speech about these issues because some people believe that Tantra is a part of yoga which contains such uh, practices and then I need to clarify this subject. 
It is not my intention today, just because of this Sutra of Patanjali, to clarify, since I am doing it anyhow in late night meetings and Tantra workshops, hear it at those times when I give those clarifications, because otherwise I would spend just 45 minutes or so tonight trying to clarify why that is true and at the same time untrue, which are the limits of it. Um, to make the long story short, to say something, however, for the commentary of the Yoga Sutra of Patanjali, of course we have to admit that nature is holographic, and in a holographic, holistic nature, surely there must exist things which are even of a material nature, and that would include herbal, animal, mineral products, which at the same time reflect the, the absolute, the ultimate. Since everything is in everything, then automatically in a reality like this reality, which is holographic, there must exist a projection of something which is very high, spiritual and transcendent. So as a matter of principle, we cannot deny that some things from the chemistry of the brain, for example, some of the endorphins, some of the melatonin, some of the DMT, some of the various secretions of the pituitary and pineal glands, are related with higher states of consciousness and either those chemical things appear through intense devotion or through prayer or through meditation or through intense tapas or through solitude or through hatha yoga or through I don't know sexual tantric practices or through I don't know what automatically these things are there and if we accept that there is a hormone of enlightenment, if we admit that there are substances which open the brain from within and they make you see the light or something like this, then automatically we have to admit that there would exist such substances outside as well, because whatever is here is everywhere and whatever is not here is nowhere. And then automatically we understand and the Vedic tradition confirms the existence of external substitutes, out of which the most famous, as I say when I speak about these things, is the legendary Veda of the, I'm sorry, the legendary Soma of the Vedas, of the Vedic priests. For those of you who don't know, Soma was a mysterious drink. It's not even understood perfectly of what it was made. It is allegedly herbal, but even that is not fully confirmed. And the Soma had two abilities. It was prolonging lifespan almost indefinitely. It was a sort of beverage of immortality, a sort of ambrosia of gods, and it was opening the mind and the spirit towards divine and very high experiences. However, through a karmic blockage specific to Kali Yuga, to the time in which we live, the formula of Soma has been lost. Today there exists lots of either phantasmagoric or crooked people who claim that they can sell or give the formula of Soma and it goes from ridiculous mixtures such as yogurt with honey, curd with honey is called by some people Soma, as far as going that some a Swedish researcher thought that it was the fly agaric, this poisonous red mushroom with white dots uh, was assimilated by Wasson, by a uh, uh, Swedish scholar with Soma. And uh, 
I have to say from the very beginning that according to everything we know in yoga and tantra, the formula of Soma is lost. If anybody has it today, they don't speak about it. It seems it is one of the karmic blockages of Kali Yuga. It seems that Soma was an aid of some sort, which was used in Satya Yuga, which was used in much more worthy times where the spirits incarnated on this planet were almost godly in nature. And for such spirits, sometimes closing the eyes was enough to produce states of Samadhi. And then Soma was then a life extension, a healing, a purifier, and a support, like a food for the mind and for its higher functions. That is why Patanjali here brings a statement which cannot be denied. He says people can get siddhis by the use of some herbs. One of the most typical is clairvoyance. Countless, countless, countless people, shamans as well as hippies, researchers as well as others, they have taken mushrooms or LSD or ayahuasca or I don't know what, and they have gone into astral projection, they have started seeing the auras and the chakras and the colors of the subtle streams, they have started seeing invisible patterns of energy, they have started seeing electricity through electric wire, they started having perception of invisible entities, contact with invisible planes of consciousness, and so on and so forth. And uh, therefore, it is undeniable that herbs, as called here, uh, Patanjali doesn't refer to any synthetical product because in his day, chemistry was not producing anything synthetical. Alchemy or primitive chemistry or whatever you want to call it was all based on natural extracts, on, on alchemical understanding of the universe. And therefore, Patanjali confirms, although it's not his path, the Yoga Sutra of Patanjali doesn't speak anything further about this subject. Patanjali confirms that herbs, the shamanic path, therefore, can yield certain siddhis. Patanjali doesn't say if all the siddhis can be obtained through this, because the most interesting thing people say, what about that cherry on top of the cake? Forget about the 99% other cities, such as seeing auras, talking with spirits, doing I don't know what, going in astral projection. I understand those can be obtained, but there is always this barrier which simply says, well, you still, however, could not reach the ultimate level of consciousness through herbs. Patanjali doesn't mention, he puts them all in a list, and he is kind of very general about this subject. He just goes vaguely on it and he doesn't bother to stop and say, this one does this and this one does that. However, lower in the sutras, there is a statement in the sutra number six of this chapter. We'll reach it tonight or not. Let's see how long the other comments until there will be. And he says, of these five, of these five sources, which are birth, herbs, mantras, tapas, and samadhi, of these five, only the mind generated by samadhi, samyama, meditation, is free of impressions of the samskaras, of the vasanas, and therefore can lead to full independent transcendence. So therefore, 
he says whatever is acquired by birth, herbs, mantras, tapas is eventually not uh, completely pure. The completely pure one is the one which is obtained by the repeated practice of samadhi and samyama. Then people will say, wait a second, then it means that Mahananda Mai and others like her, Krishnamurti for the case, since they had it from birth, it was maybe not complete. Patanjali says that if this Siddhi, even the Siddhi of consciousness, a perfect consciousness, a pure consciousness, which could be called a Siddhi, if this Siddhi is coming out of birth, herbs, mantras, tapas, it's not pure, it's not clear of vasanas, so therefore it one could relapse, one could fall back. This is something which is seen very often when people have spontaneous samadhi generated by birth without practice, samadhi which comes accidental like in the case of Walt Whitman or in the case of Ramana Maharishi, or others, and then automatically, if the, or when samadhi comes by very sudden methods, you cheat the laws of nature, you use a method like the tantric methods of Kashmiri Shaivism, some methods of Zen, some methods of Tibetan Dzogchen, or some of the sudden methods of Gurdjieff, and you use some of those crazy methods, and you kind of cheat the mind, cross it in a certain way, and suddenly you find yourself in a state of samadhi. This is as well as taking a herb or something for going to some state of void or of clear consciousness, of pure consciousness. Patanjali himself coming back on this says, all those are short-lived. You can have them, but the vasanas, the samskaras, the residues of the subconscious mind, which are like the roots of weeds on a field. On a field you can weed the field, but the roots are very deep and then after three months the weeds are coming again and you have to weed the field once more it's like the weeds are immortal they are deathless they are like the most ask any farmer the weeds are one of the most stubborn thing which exists you work so hard to cultivate the wheat or the corn or whatever you cultivate and nobody cultivates the weeds but the weeds keep coming like crazy and you have to work constantly to take the weeds out. Those weeds in the human mind are the samskaras or the vasanas. These words are the same. If you remember, it's just two synonyms, two equivalent words. And the samskaras or the vasanas are not eradicated if you obtain your state of spiritual samadhi by birth, by herbs, by mantras, by... Uh, tapas. They have to be acquired through the state of samadhi itself, through the state of samyama, of spiritual samyama itself. And that is why in this sutra Patanjali doesn't say, Patanjali is very open-minded and he says siddhis of different kinds, some of them are seeing auras, some of them are feeling completely spiritually enlightened, siddhis of different kinds material cities as well as spiritual cities are coming from five causes. He just gives a general survey. Birth, which I said, herbs, mantras, tapas, and samyama, regular practice of samyama and samadhi. Therefore, Patanjali neither says that herbs, for example, because we had reached at the second of them, 
can give or cannot give, but later he warns that even if they can give some spiritual state, that spiritual state is not established. It's like you have a glimpse of some truth, and then if you forget to weed your field, the weeds will grow again and overwhelm everything again, which means you can have such a state of samadhi at the age of 20, and at the age of 50 you can be a complete moron again. Like you forgot what you had. I have seen people, have been these people in the psychedelic generation who have tried lots of things and they thought they were very enlightened a la Timothy Leary and they wanted to enlighten the whole of America and the whole planet and so on. You know, Timothy Leary and his folks had a plan to put LSD in the water supply of the big cities, you know. Everybody should drink water with LSD. Then it would be fun without end. Then we'd have a kind of higher consciousness without end. And these people, whatever they experience, nevertheless it was short-lived. There exists a movie on the internet which is called The Fascinating or something, Death of Timothy Leary. Uh, and when you look at it and see how he became when he was old, what kind of person he was, what temperament, what you do not see Ramakrishna, you do not see Aurobindo, you do not see Shivananda, you do not see St. Francis of Assisi, you do not see Meister Eckhart, you do not see, you see a person who is debased, you just see an old hippie who is basically uh, flopped to a large extent. And that's because whatever he or his fellows saw, the Vasanas were still there, and when Ramana Maharishi reached Samadhi, accidentally, and his vasanas were there, then Ramana Maharishi ran away from his family and society. He lived in Tiruvannamalai for 10-15 years. He meditated in the basement of some temple, and he basically spent 15 years where he was unknown, unseen, full of austerities, and thus he cleansed his vasanas. He realized that this was not enough, that you can relapse back into some sort of ignorance. And that is why Patanjali does not deny that glimpses can be obtained. I personally would say that if any person in this world is mentally strong, focused, pure, very balanced, having attained a good arousing of Kundalini, a good mental control, a great devotion towards God and all such characteristics, which are automatically an excellent qualification for reaching Samadhi. Anyhow, if such a person would taste, I don't know what uh, herbal thing, the Soma of the Vedics, they will find that this is like a sort of amplifier of consciousness. What you have in your consciousness, this amplifies ten times over or a hundred times over and then your kundalini rising can become extremely easy and you don't need to pull so hard you can so can it actually help for some spiritual level yes according to patanjali it can help but it won't give a permanent result your spiritual effort still has to come ramana maharishi didn't do 15 years of yoga before he reached samadhi but he did 15 years of yoga after he reached Samadhi. In the case of Ramana Maharishi, the cart was in front of the horses. He first got one and then the other, while normally people first practice 
and then they get the spiritual realization. So Ramana Maharishi was very down to earth. He was very realistic because he realized that just some glimpse of Samadhi without following up on it and eradicating the samskaras, it would result basically in a permanent risk that as soon as you get into some particular circumstances, the samskaras are going to blossom again. Many Tibetan gurus, many people are flabbergasted because Tibetan lamas, when they sit in Tibet and they go 4,000 meters high, they meditate like Milarepa and they are really tough and they witness some things. And then when they come to America, they start dancing rock and roll in discos and behave sometimes as half demented. And people say, where, the, where on earth is the spirituality of these people? On one hand, these people are supposed to come from a cave from Tibet. And on the other hand, as soon as they find some sweet Western life, they start behaving in very strange ways. Because the samskaras, the vasanas, were still there. And as soon as you pour water over those weeds, those weeds are growing like blissfully. And therefore, then it would be like, okay, if I'm going in a place where these samskaras are going to be tickled and stimulated, then I have to be more full of tapas. I have to do lots of austerity. I have to live a real severe life. I lock myself into a room and I live a very severe life of austerity because I have not yet eradicated my vasanas, my samskaras. But if you are not aware of this and you start saying, ha, ah, what's the problem? I have seen the truth. You have seen the truth, but decay is still possible. Here Patanjali actually implicitly, indirectly, denies one of the major superstitions and one of the folklore tenets of India and Tibet. Because in India and Tibet many people believe and many yogis feel their ego very tickled when they talk about this and it's very easy to believe in this because it tickles your ego so much that if you have reached states of samadhi you are infallible infallible like the Pope you know you can't go wrong oh Guruji is an enlightened being and therefore everything he says is right and history shows time and again Gurus tumbling off the pedestal falling off because everybody tickled them and said you cannot go wrong you can't be wrong but the Christian saints who instead of having this puffed up arrogance which is pathetic in some environments and unfortunately the Indian yogic environment has grown pathetic from this standpoint humility is not cultivated enough and that's why people so easily can get puffed up it's a, also a matter of temperament as well I could insist a lot but it's not the time and the place to go in that direction the Christian saints, the fathers of the desert, who are constantly on their watch like the devil is going to ruin my soul, one false step and I'm going to hell. And they always said, as long as you are alive, you are liable to fall back, you are liable to flop. You have to keep struggling as if you were not enlightened till the last breath. Only when you have finished your last breath, then you can say, I have won.
I am finally incorruptible. I cannot be tumbled down. But otherwise, the weeds are ready to be there. Therefore, here Patanjali actually says only in one privileged condition when the samskaras have been eradicated totally, one can speak about the fact that there is no more danger in this way. If not, actually, this popular folklore statement is a superstition and it is fake that people say, oh, Master Tilopa is enlightened and therefore Master Tilopa can't go wrong. They can, and sometimes they do. Sometimes they are minor things, utterly minor things. Sometimes they are minor things which are completely harmless, like real little childish things, such as Mananda Mai was a very vata person, very restless. She all the time would move from one ashram to another. She had three ashrams and she would keep moving instead of sitting quiet. Swami Shivananda was severely overweight. He was having already a form of diabetes and he was eating sometimes even one and a half kilos of sugar per day of those granulated sugar which people offer on pujas, you know. What did Swami Shivananda try to make a martyr of himself by eating sugar when he was having such a frail uh, physical condition? And the list could continue. I could show you about other great teachers who are having oddities, peculiarities, because of some of these fighting still with some of these samskaras and vasanas, which were not eradicated. But of course, most of them were still very moral and very ethical human beings, which means they eradicated the very bad vasanas and samskaras, and they still were having some minor weeds in their garden, but those minor weeds were not disturbing other people, really. They were, I like, you could really make abstraction of them or not really care about those. So in this way, uh, here is a long commentary in which, uh, which I made on this statement in which Patanjali claims that there are various ways of inducing even the state of Samadhi, but they are not permanent unless the Vasanas are eradicated, as I will show later. And by mantras, by mantras actually um, he means more uh, the practice of magic, this would be the path of the magician. There exist some paths in Tantra as well as in the Western Hermetic tradition where some people, one of the typologies for reaching enlightenment is the typology of the magician. Uh, there is even a typology of Shiva that is called Shiva Mayavin, Shiva the magician. And therefore, for some yogis, for some spiritual practitioners, there exists this tendency of using the various magic powers illustrated here by the word mantra. Actually, the word mantra goes hand in hand with the word yantra. It goes hand in hand with the word tantra. They are all three words from the same family. Mantra, yantra, tantra. And it means basically all these set of correlative practices, all these set of 
correlation practices in which you relate a part of your body like a chakra with a cosmic power, with a mantra, with a color, with a geometrical form, with an energy, with this, with that, and that becomes a correlated system of practice. And therefore, Patanjali says by the use of mantras, yantras, and the tantric lore, not as sexual tantra, but as tantra as a general concept, it is also possible to reach states of samadhi, and that is the case in some situations. By austerities, tapas, you know from the lectures in the first month of yoga that tapas is a holy cow, and that many people believe that you can attain different accomplishments by severe tapas. The more severe the tapas, the better. And Patanjali confirms that yes, you can reach paranormal things, you can reach higher states of consciousness, but be aware, he says later, because those are not fully established. In spite of the fact that tapas seems to be very holy, and then you say, but I worked for it. The tapas can generate a certain quality, but has not eradicated the latent qualities about which Patanjali is going to speak in the next sutras. And finally, by samadhi, understood in the meaning of samyama, as described before. All these things are quite clear, and it's a general statement, although this general statement is quite provocative, because Patanjali is open-minded and accepts lots of things. <coughs> and, on sutra number two, he continues. He says, by the overflow of Prakriti, I'm going to explain this in a minute, occurs the transformation from one state or from one birth, from one existential state, into another. He says, by the overflow of Prakriti, or the ripening of the causes. He you, actually uses the word prakriti and overflow of prakriti. Therefore, he basically says here, by the overflow of prakriti, which means by the over-manifestation of some energies of nature, which are energies of nature? What is prakriti made of? Prakriti is made, for example, out of the five elements. One of the most easy way of describing the universe is to describe it by the five elements. The universe, Prakriti, is made out of the five elements. And, of course, there is the mind, which is on top of the five elements. So, by the overflow of Prakriti, which means by overflow of fire, by overflow of water, by overflow of air, or of this or of that, occurs the transformation from one state into another. The transformation from one state into another, in the understanding of Patanjali, the way it is commented by the great commentators, and Patanjali himself means it that way, it is that he speaks about from one life to another. He actually uses this double entendre language, because Sanskrit is uh, ambiguous, it is ambivalent, as I said, and it can be understood in a wider meaning, from one state to another. Like now you are a human being, but if you do certain spiritual practices for a certain time, you can develop into a superhuman. You can become a deity, or what some people would call a demigod, a demigod. You can become some sort of superhuman being. That's another state. 
it's not only about this life as life that I was born from my mother as a baby I grew up I became adult it's not only the biological life like a chunk one life two lives three lives it simply talks about all the states in general the state of existence for example there exist states of existence which are between two physical lives those are included so Patanjali says by the overflow of the elements of nature like the five elements and aspects from the mind related to them the samskaras the vasanas the residues the projections in the mind occurs the transformation from one state of birth into another so basically patanjali says wherever you go from one life to the next whatever you become after this life whatever you have been before you are born in this life it's all coming from different forces of prakriti which simply says patanjali immediately says it's not from purusha purusha does not influence where you go where you come from what karma is there uh, basically patanjali immediately separates karma becoming states of existence are all into prakriti and Purusha or the immortal spirit has nothing to do with this. He wants simply to underline from the beginning that all the transformation, all the cause of evolution and existence is of a material type. It belongs to the realm of Prakriti. It's an important start because here Patanjali is going to make a wonderful analysis of karma, of the samskaras, of the chain of existences because of course he wants to take us to the point where he tells us how to get out of this what is on the other side and this comment was short the sutra number three continues this this was a transition sutra in the first sutra he said the mind and the cities are coming from five causes the transformation from one existential case to a cause i'm sorry state to another is occurring by the manifestation of some forces of prakriti he calls it overflow like there is too much of this and then it generates that if you have too much manipura chakra when you die you go in an astral world which is full of manipura chakra the people who have lots of manipura chakra even when they dream they dream violence they dream competition they dream things of manipura chakra even their psychic world is completely conditioned of that why because like attracts like it's the law of resonance when you are manipuristic in what sort of astral universe do you go when you go out of your body a manipuristic person never goes into a muladhara astral universe a muladharistic human being goes every night in a muladhara universe that is why manipura people never have paranoid nightmares but muladhara people all the time have paranoid nightmares so if you are a person who has lots of nightmares in which some demons are chasing you through some basement tunnels and you swim in a sticky liquid up to your chest and you can't move and everything is frightening and so on and so on basically what is happening is that you have a big muladhara and you are projecting in a muladhara universe in a muladhara astral universe and there you are experiencing paranoia fear heaviness obscurity inertia and all the poisons 
all the characteristics which are expressing the poisons of the root chakra and the poisons of the earth element. And therefore, it's by overflow of Prakriti that the existential states change. You have Svadhisthana, you go in a Svadhisthana universe. You have Anahata, you go in an Anahata universe. You have Anahata, you'll be born with a body on Anahata. You have Manipura, you'll be born in a country with lots of Manipura and in a body which is typical for Manipura and so on and so forth. Of course, the situation is much more complex because then the karma can be positive, negative and Patanjali will analyze this immediately. So, saying this, explaining this, Patanjali is going to the Sutra number 3, which says the instrumental cause, which means basically the good and bad actions, the karma, the instrumental cause, does not stir up accidentally the various natures, and by this it can also mean the various bodies, types of existence, but merely removes the obstacles like a good farmer. This is a very down-to-earth analogy. Here Patanjali, according to all the commentators, makes an allusion to the farming irrigation. That Those of you who have seen irrigation in India, they have a river or a stream which flows constantly, and from time to time they take away some rocks, and the water is allowed to stream on some channels which are made. And by damming and unblocking various channels, they make the water run here, run there, and thus you can irrigate lots of fields starting with this one. So basically, what does the farmer do to let the water stream? He simply removes a blockage. He just removes a few rocks or earth, and he basically opens like a gate, and then the water... <laughs> rushes through there and what's happening next it's known already like the farmer knows if the water rushes through this channel then that will be the outcome of it this field will be irrigated or whatever exactly in the same way Patanjali here says that the instrumental cause which means when he speaks about cause he speaks about karma ultimately he speaks about the results of the good and bad actions because before of this, he said that these are creating the states of existence. These ones are the ones that create the states of existence. And the commentary here can be taken to a great extent, because if I'm turning back a bit to the Sutra number 2 to relate it to what he says in number 3, uh, basically he says that these conditions cannot be changed. They manifest the way they manifest. If, for example, you are born in a certain existential condition, you have to un undergo that karma till the end. For example, if you are born as a woman, you cannot become a man. If you are born as a man, you cannot give birth to children from your body. You don't have a womb and you cannot create biological life out of your own body. And therefore, there are some limitations. Once such an element of nature has decided you are going to be like this, you are going to be like this, this is what manifests, then automatically we are having an excess of a certain element and that element has to manifest. If you want to take it in extremis, if you want to take it as a Hindu superstition level, if somebody would be born in a lifetime as an animal, 
you cannot change it anymore. Even if afterwards you recover or something like this, you can't change it. So there are things which are irreversible. There are lives which are like tailor made for a certain destiny. And therefore, such as you are a child and by a freak accident or by a freak disease, you lose both your legs a few days after you are born. Okay, you lose your legs, you lose your legs. There is nothing which can be done unless you meet with Jesus to grow your legs back. But otherwise, that life will definitely go in a certain direction because it has been chosen already. It manifests a certain overflow of, pra of Prakriti. It manifests a certain energy. And Patanjali will come back to that. That's why I don't insist too much right now. And that's why he says the instrumental cause does not stir up accidentally the various natures, but merely removes the obstacles as a good farmer. Remember, the going from one state to another, going from one birth to another, is caused by the overflow of Prakriti. So Prakriti is like a river that is about to burst. And it's overflowing. And therefore it's overflowing. And the instrumental cause, this is very, very important, the instrumental cause does not produce things. It actually removes obstacles to things. It's a very, very subtle thing. It's like it's not pushing. It's not pushing the water go in that direction. The water pushes by itself. Life is eternal. Prakriti is alive. Prakriti is Shakti. And therefore there is an overflow. Patanjali doesn't want to admit it because he is a classical yogi, but he basically says here exactly what Tantric Yoga says, that the universe moves forward whatever we do. There exists a blind inertia, and this blind inertia which makes the universe evolve, 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 is called by the Tantrics Dumavati, for those of you who studied the cosmic powers. And this great power of Dumavati makes that the cosmic wheel spins even when nothing seems to happen. There are people for whom there is the joke, like, what does your life consist of? What, the, what did Walter do in this life? Oh, all Walter did in this life was convert oxygen into carbon dioxide. That's what he did in his life. Basically, Walter was like a worm, lived the life of a worm, of a larva. You know, he didn't do anything in this life. Guess what? Walter still evolved. A little bit. A little bit. What some Upanishads say, Walter said the Ajapa Ajapa mantra. His breath went hamsa, 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 21,006 times per day. So Walter moved one centimeter forward in a completely useless life, in a completely static life, in which all that Walter did was spin his thumbs and convert oxygen into carbon dioxide, of course. Walter nevertheless evolved. You evolve even when you sit like this and do nothing. Why? Because the river under you moves. The earth moves. The whole background moves. The yoga hall moves with you. You are on a platform of a train. And even when you feel you sit, the train under you is moving. This train which is moving is Prakriti, Shakti, 
Dumavati Shakti. It is the fact that even in nothingness, there exists a very slow stepping forward. And this simply says the universe, Prakriti, is like a river. It overflows. It wants to live. It wants to transform. It is putting pressure behind the dam. It is overflowing. And what karma needs to do is not to push Prakriti, because Prakriti, Prakriti is already pushed by her own nature. Prakriti wants to manifest. Shakti wants to live. Life lives. Life wants to live. What karma does is that it simply opens some doors and then the water gushes through certain channels. And that is very Im important. Try to realize. Let's look at the parable of the farmer from another standpoint. A farmer plants wheat or corn or some useful plant which he wants to cultivate. Can the farmer actually stimulate the growth of the wheat? Like he's going to the wheat and start saying, Sesame, grow up, sesame, sesame, my darling wheat, grow. He cannot do that, but he can weed the field. And when he weeds the field, the wheat grows because there are no more weeds to hinder it, to sabotage it. So it's exactly the same. What does a good farmer do? A good farmer removes the obstruction and the nature does the rest. You don't have to sing to your wheat to make it grow. The wheat grows anyhow through the force of nature. You don't have to ask it to grow. It grows because nature wills to go to the next state. The overflow of Prakriti anyhow produces the next state. And that is why it's very important to think about this because the instrumental cause, karma, and the vasanas, samskaras, good actions, bad actions, all the factors which generate evolution, development, does not stir up accidentally the various natures, like developing this nature in a human being, pushing this human being there, developing this planet or this group of people or this animal soul or this or that. No, it simply removes obstacles. It acts defensively, negatively, not positively. It sounds as a small tricky statement, like you are looking at the half empty, at the empty half or at the full half of the glass. Isn't it the same? No, because actually the pessimists look at the empty half of the glass and the optimists always look at the full half of the glass. And it makes a big difference if you are an optimist or a pessimist in the way you live your life and in the way you feel things. And therefore, here simply Patanjali says, look at your lives, look at your evolution, look at your karma. How does your karma actually act upon you? How do the vasanas and samskaras act upon you? How does the instrumental cause act upon you? It simply cleans the way and then you naturally flow in that way. Therefore, it means, wait a second, if I really had a clear conscience, I wouldn't flow there. For example, I have a violent karma and my karma is pushing me to put myself into reckless situations. If I have a, a violent karma, my karma says, buy yourself a motorcycle. Because it's a statistically known thing that motorcycle riding people have the largest number of accidents in traffic. 
and therefore, how do I get the best customer to break a leg or something? Then, riding a motorbike. And therefore, my karma is tickling me under my chin. And it is saying, gully, 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 gully. Come here, buy yourself a motorbike, you know? And because I have to break your leg, but I can't break your leg if you behave. It becomes very difficult then, if you are totally aware. And therefore, I have, I need you to fetch. I need you to push yourself in a stupid situation where actually you will become liable to break your leg. And therefore, karma and the instrumental cause acts in a negative way. It creates a vacuum. It creates an emptiness. It steps back and you, because of the overflow of Prakriti, you pour there. You say, life took me there. There was a bridge. There was an opening and life flew there. So I'm continuing a bit with the Sutra number three because it is important for you to get some awareness in your lives. Sutra number three says the instrumental cause does not stir up accidentally the various natures. It's not by pushing, therefore, by stirring up, but merely removes the obstacles like a skillful farmer. So it practices this policy of withdrawing and leaving a void space. And we, because we are full of Prakriti, and because life wants to live, we want to fill up the space. It's the law of life that we have to live and fulfill as many potentialities as possible. And because of this, as soon as the nature leaves an empty space, the natural tendency is to step and fill it up. And in this way, nature is like guiding us exactly as you ride a, guide a mouse in a labyrinth. It's enough to open a door to the right, then a door to the left, and you just follow whatever zigzag trajectory nature has planned for you. An energy is much, another energy is much, and these causes they produce that some obstacles are removed. But automatically this says, if I would be able to hold my horses, if I would be able to hold the water, like I would have my own safety dam, not only the dam of nature, I would say, no, I'm not going here. For example, if you are going to study the horoscope of Ramakrishna, maybe in a classical astrology, you would go to say that Ramakrishna, as a regular citizen, was meant to have three children. But did Ramakrishna have children, although he was married? No, he did not. He practiced his tantric things. He did not have children. Either he was fully celibate in the end of his life, or he practiced tantric continence, or whatever was his secret. This doesn't matter. But fact was that Ramakrishna did not fill up the gap. The stars made an empty space for Ramakrishna and simply said, Ramakrishna, dear, you have space to inflate yourself and have three babies, have three children through your wife or something. And Ramakrishna didn't go there. He had a second line of defense, another balloon to hold the water, another dam, which was his consciousness, his clear consciousness, like, yes, I could have three children, but I'm not going to do that. Again, maybe it's an uninspired example and often I'm getting this question. 
because some of you might say, oh, so is there actually something wrong with children? Does yoga think that children are wrong or something? No, that's not what I meant. I didn't say that Ramakrishna said it would have been wrong. Ramakrishna thought it was not for him. He personally didn't want to go there. Other people were going and Ramakrishna was happy for them, advising them and so on. So the point is not that one. Uh, again, don't take the example as absolute in itself. It's more like the illustration of a principle. The principle can say that if you eat very wrong food, you are going to have a cancer in your colon. But if you don't eat meat, and if you cleanse your colon systematically with Shanka Prakshalana and yogic methods, and if you practice all sorts of healthy diets and so on, do you think you are going to have a cancer in your colon? Never ever therefore but you would be tempted when you are a person who has in his books to have a cancer in the colon you become glutton you overeat you love meat you love all those things because it's like a fatality which attracts you to go there it's like the nature has stepped back and it's like an empty space which needs to be filled up and you are overflowing prakriti tends to go there. That's why we can actually harness this power of Prakriti. We don't actually need to go everywhere where nature allows us to go. There are simply places where I say, I don't go there. There were people who were meant to be rich and suddenly they gave up all their richness and they entered into a monastery. They gave it like Francis of Assisi. He was born from a rich family of a merchant and he was supposed to be one of the richest people of Assisi, one of the richest persons. And he gave up everything, even his clothes, even his shoes. He gave them back to his father and he says, I gave you everything, your clothes, your shoes, your name. Now there are no more fathers, there are no more sons, there are no more. Now I'm free, I'm a child of God. And therefore, he simply refused his destiny. You can refuse a destiny if you don't fill this gap. Remember, we always go forward. In India, they say your destiny is written on your forehead. Like it's related with Ajna Chakra, of course, but you can see it in the lives of people. It's almost like on the face of people. When you see people, you kind of see what kind of destiny awaits them through their behavior because they step forward there. You have one who is reckless and always does reckless, dangerous things. You know this one is liable to die young. This one has a violent karma. This one is looking for it. This one is going with a candle in the daytime looking for trouble. You know, he says, where is my trouble? Where is my trouble? You know, I'm looking for my trouble. He's asking for it simply. And therefore, you see it. And that is why there exists a proverb at least we have it in Romania, there exists a proverb which says every bird dies in its own language, in its own native language, you know? Like, everybody who gets good or bad karma manifested, they get it exactly in the way in which they were asking for it. You can see it coming in most of the times. It is true that there are exceptional cases like a very small baby which is hit by polio or things like this where you couldn't see it coming because that person didn't have the time to develop and it's something which kind of 
implacably comes from a previous existence and hits at a very early stage. It's a samskara which manifests even before that child started getting a personality, a manifestation of some sort. But again, I'm saying, uh, exception made these cases in which karma acts purely as an echo. Nevertheless, for the rest of the people, you can see this effect that we always tend to fill a gap. And as we fill that gap, we automatically define our future. We define our next state. What's the next state? And therefore, sometimes you need to just let go because your nature goes there. You work on Ajna, you work on Sahasrara, you purify yourself. What can happen from this? Only one thing can happen. You are going to become a demigod. You are going to become a bodhisattva. You are going to become a Buddha. The Prakriti will overflow there. But on the other hand, life can give you other opportunities, like doors are open in front of you. Remember, you are not obliged to take every door which opens in front of you. Some of these doors are just like temptations. Your karma, your samskaras, open all sorts of doors in front of you. And you are not obliged to go there. Quite the contrary. Sometimes there are many opportunities and you simply don't want to take that opportunities and you say, I know that I could be very rich. I know that I could do this. I know that I could have that power. I know, but hey, it's not me. I'm not interested in this. Because of course the water will fill up every opening. It would run in every channel that is open for it. But with consciousness, with awareness, we can have a second line of defense and we are not chaotically filling up all the doors that are open in front of us by nature, by our karma, by the instrumental cause and by the samskaras. And then Patanjali has to bring another idea to basically add all those ideas together and create the great conclusion where he wants to reach. In the sutra number four, after he described this mechanism of action of the karma and meditate upon it, that's how everybody's karma works. Like a good farmer, it opens some, it removes some obstacles and then you just go there by yourself. Your prakriti pushes you there, overflows there, but you can stop it. Then in the sutra number four, he slightly changes the subject because he wants to add another argument and then make a conclusion from those said until here and from now on. In the sutra number four, he says, created minds and their mental constructions, which means precisely the samskaras, the vasanas. So now he starts speaking about the causes of these. Proceed from the sense of ego alone. So now he starts speaking about the samskaras and the vasanas. He spoke about the mind and now he brings what is this instrumental cause which makes the prakriti, the nature, the energy flow in certain directions. What is this instrumental cause which is the karma? It is generated by vasanas, by the latent impressions in the mind which are like the roots of the weed in a field. And now he starts analyzing those a little bit. And he says, created minds and their mental constructions, all these thoughts which become the roots of things, proceed from the sense of ego alone. With this, 
Patanjali says karma and all that results from it, the vasanas, have nothing to do with purusha. They don't proceed from your spirit. You cannot say my spirit has been doing this or uh, thinking this and therefore I developed this vasana and therefore my spirit wants to go here or there. Well, yeah, it's true. My life is a kind of hell, but it is my spirit that wants me to experience this hell. This is one of the ridiculous statements which you find all the time in the New Age subculture, that people come and say, oh, actually my soul chose for me in this life to be born like this and to have this lesson and so on. If by your soul you meant your mind, then you are right. But if by the word soul you actually meant your spirit, which means your Atman, your transcendent spirit, then you are utterly wrong. Because your spirit does not choose anything. Your spirit is a witness. And therefore it's a complete mistake to say, my spirit chose me to be born in this life and to have polio and to be handicapped and to taste some bitter aspect of life and therefore to learn something from this. No. Your spirit is looking with detachment upon this because it is a witness. It's the universal witness and it plays all the roles of this universe. But it is your mind that has created that set of circumstances. And therefore, Patanjali in the Sutra number 4, he says the created minds and the constructions which result from those, the products of those minds, the thoughts, the vikalpas, the samskaras, the vasanas, are proceed from the sense of ego alone. Stop blaming God for those. Stop blaming your immortal spirit for those. It has nothing. Those are two things which don't mix like water and oil. They are on two different sides of a borderline. The spirit is above the borderline and the mind and the ego and all these are under the borderline. And the very high level of you, which is the sense of ego, the mental sense of ego, has produced this individual mind, but that is not the spirit. These are the kind of people who mix up their mind with their spirit. When they say, who are you? I always say, I am my mind. Descartes, cogito ergo sum. I think, therefore I am. If you say, I think, therefore I am, it means you identify with your mind. You think that you is the mind, but you are not the mind. The mind is not you. And therefore, you cannot, you have to discriminate. Patanjali starts now a game of discriminating because he wants to talk about kaivalya, isolation, what is the pure spirit. And therefore, he starts using the knife of his mind to cut, to separate. This thing is coming from this. The prakriti is pushing forward and creates your life. So don't blame Purusha for your lives or for this. Don't blame Purusha for your karma. Don't blame Purusha for the created mind and its constructions. Because these are not produced by the spirit. It's just a fallacy. It's a false way of looking upon things. And then... On the Sutra number 5, and I will stop with this one for tonight, he gives a wonderful, wonderful statement. He says, there is only one mind that directs the many thoughts, even in connection with a multitude 
of activities. This is a beautiful sutra. It's translated in slightly different ways by other commentators. It basically says, Patanjali, now he still analyzes the mind. He is not over the border. He is under the borderline. He still analyzes the mind. And he says, although there exist several minds produced by the sense of ego, at the same time there exists a one mind. The mind is the place where all the rivers of the universe converge into oneness. But that oneness is not yet the oneness of consciousness. There exists not only an ocean of consciousness, there exists an ocean of mind. For example, students of the mind, like Jung and others, they speak about a collective subconscious mind. They say there are levels where my mind is my mind and your mind is your mind and those are like peaks coming out of the water exactly like mountains which come from under the water and they appear like islands and you are an island, I am an island and my conscious mind is very different because I have my memories, I have my name, I have my status, I have my characteristics, my psychology, my everything. And this is my mind, and that is your mind. So we are like islets, we are separate from each other. But when you start going deeper and deeper under the water, there come the subconscious levels. And the subconscious levels are still separate. The bottom, the foundation of this island, is separate from the foundation of this island. But if I go deep enough, they meet. There is a point where they meet and they simply become the crust of the earth. If you just chop and chop and chop and chop, there is a level where there is no more this island and that island. Which means, at a certain level, my mind is your mind. There does exist a collective subconscious mind. Research after research has demonstrated that the cub of an animal, a reindeer, a little reindeer cub, is just born, it has difficulty in standing up, it has its shaky thin legs, and it barely manages to push itself up, and as soon as it stands up and it walks wobbling for a few steps, what does it do? It goes to the teeth of its mother and starts sucking milk. How does its brain know that that's where the milk is? Because we are supposed to learn by learning. And therefore it would suppose that the mother would come and put the tit in the mouth of the little baby, as we do with human cubs, and see, silly, that's where the milk is, that's where food is. So next time you should know. No? So the brain of the little cub learns, but the brain of the little cub knows before it is given to it. It just goes straight there. How is it pre-written? How do we know that the fire burns? How do we know that this and that? We are born with a set of instructions, with a part of our software already written on the hard disk. We are already imprinted with some of it. Some basic thing is already written. That thing is from the collective subconscious mind. It's something which we learn from the species. We learn from everybody else. That is why there is... It's like we walk in a swamp with our legs up till our knees. From the knees up, we all look separate. But from the knees down, we all share the same swamp. We are connected with the same swamp. 
This swamp is the collective subconscious mind. And this is the deep level of the mind. This is the one mind. This is what's happening when you go in delta and theta waves in the night. When you go in the deep sleep without dreams. And you go in the very deep levels of the subconscious mind. And you go to some levels which are a common mind. Beyond dreams. Beyond everything. This is where genetic information is recorded. For example, major scientists have demonstrated that you cannot explain elementary things in genetics and learning just by chemistry, just by the genetical code. That's why some avant-garde, some cutting-edge scientists of today, they have come up with concepts to add to the genetical code and all these other genetic things, such as the brilliant British biologist, Robert Sheldrake. Robert Sheldrake says it's not enough to talk about genes and chemistry. We have to talk about the so-called morphogenetic fields. He says there exist some informational fields, some fields of energy and information, which are nothing else but the collective subconscious mind, and the information is structured by these morphogenetic fields. Robert Sheldrake is famous, among others. He made brilliant breakthrough, and of course, the official science flatly denies, refuses to even comment on this. So Robert Sheldrake is one of the heretics of science in modern days, exactly as Wilhelm Reich was 50 or 70 years ago, and so many other brilliant scientists were in their own time, Nikola Tesla and so many others. And uh, Robert Sheldrake has demonstrated, among others, the existence of this uh, phenomenon by the famous hundred monkey effect that you teach a skill to monkeys in an island and when more than a number of monkeys which is like a critical mass learn that skill such as how to use a stick to put it in an ant hill to catch ants with it to take it out full of ants and then to lick the ants like on a lollipop from it and thus to get to eat ants faster to use a trick an instrument and when a hundred monkeys or a thousand or something have learned this trick, monkeys from other islands start doing it spontaneously. Who teaches those monkeys to do this? It's like they have a telepathic contact. This telepathic contact happens when only an enough number of people does that. The same is valid on the planet Earth. That's why when you meditate, you are important. Because if enough people would meditate, once we would reach a critical mass, this planet would be transformed. The consciousness would be transformed. People would become again more moral, more ethical, more spiritual. The climate would change. The behavior of animals would change. The cataclysm of nature would be averted. And many other things would happen. Because we communicate. There is a critical mass. If more and more people practice yoga, practice meditation, practice morality and ethics, practice spirituality, practice vegetarianism and start sparing the life of poor animals and so on and so forth, this will spread. It's true that nowadays we who practice practical spirituality are in a sort of minority. And that's why spirituality seems to be difficult. Because if you would have been in Tibet where one third of the population lived in monasteries and did yoga and prayer and rituals and stuff, then you would have been like caught into a wave of enthusiasm. It's like everybody does it 
and therefore I'm doing it together with them. It would become like a fashion to do yoga, to do meditation, to do rituals, to be spiritual. Then it would become easy. It's like a seesaw that tilts on the other side. For the time being on this seesaw, we are sitting on a very little represented branch because very few people are practicing hardcore spirituality in a world like the modern world. And that is why, coming back to our thing, in the Sutra number 5, Patanjali says, although there exist so many minds, there also exists an ocean of mind, a common mind. There exists a primordial mind, and that primordial mind is on the highest levels of Ajna Chakra. It's like at the border with Sahasrara. At the border between matter and spirit, mind, matter, becomes one. The highest form of matter is mind, the last level. And out of this mind, the highest level of mind is an appeased mind, a unified mind, like a mind which is calm and without waves. This is the essence of classical yoga. Classical yoga is based on the appeasement of the mind. When you will study Kashmiri Shaivas, you will see that there the accomplishment of Anavopaya, the path of the individual, which is exactly what classical yoga is, is called Chittavishranti, or the appeasement of the mind. The mind is appeased. You cannot taste of the greater consciousness unless when your mind becomes like an ocean without waves. First, you need to create peace in yourself. That is why in India, all the Upanishads and the Sadhus and others, they all the time when they finish some texts or some mantras or some readings, the last mantra which they sing is Om Shanti Shanti Shanti. And uh, Western hippies believe that Shanti means peace, like may, let's make peace between the Palestinians and the Israelis or something like this. But Jesus says very clearly, my peace is not the peace of the world. I'm not coming to bring that peace, but a sword, he says. So it's like spiritual peace has nothing to do with peacemaking in diplomatic treatises and <coughs> bargainings and things. It's not about that. Surely, political and administrative peace is very good. Although, sometimes nature needs some churning. If human beings, by a miracle, would manage to create some sort of political universal peace, and of course it can be a peace as the ruling class wants it. That's what the Roman Empire was trying to create. Peace among the barbarians. There are all these barbarians and migratory nations and the Romans are going to come and bring them peace because the Romans are civilized and those guys are just a bunch of barbarians. And that peace was called Pax Romana. The Roman peace, not just peace, Peace according to the Romans, by Roman standards, not the peace the way the Goths wanted it, the peace the way the Romans would have it. So, of course, today we are going to have a peace the way the bankers, the financial people, the industrialists want to have it. A peace in which the regular citizen is a slave, the global village, the globalization of the planet, 
one world, one currency, one army, everybody microchipped and controlled, population reduced to one billion people, and everybody being a happy slave working for 300 privileged people who own 95% of the world resources and money. That's the kind of peace, no? And then everybody can live peacefully. Please don't spoil the status quo. The status quo is we are in charge, you are workers, work, do your stuff, let it be in peace. No more revolution. The revolution has to blow itself off. Like now, we don't want any more revolution. Revolution is unwelcome after a certain level because it spoils the way we organize things exactly the way we want to have them. And then we start having a Spartacus or some revolutionary, some Che Guevara, who comes and spoils the status quo. We don't want to have that. And therefore, what I'm trying to say here is, if humanity would try to build such a perverted peace, because that's not real peace, that's not the peace in which creativity is supreme, in which the spirit is alive, that is the peace of a planet of slaves. It's a prison planet, and there is no riot in the prison. Then, then we call it peace. But if we would have such a peace, such a fake peace, you can be sure that all the cosmic energies, all the Shaktis, Kali, and all the other powers, they would stir up, there would come tornadoes, earthquakes, plague, epidemics, everything, because humanity needs churning. There is a dialectics. We need yin and yang. We know things to boil. How else are we going to get evolution? By sitting and working eight hours per day like robots and getting just enough to survive from one day to another and be pleased with your biological life and eat and sleep and procreate and that's what our life is? This is not evolution. This is a caricature. This is not life. This is not spirit. So actually, we are not talking about this kind of peace, a political and administrative peace. When the sadhus of India, they say Om Shanti, Shanti, Shantihi, it means peace of the mind, to reach this ocean of mind. And the Christian mystics who derived from the fathers of the desert, those who continued with the prayer of the heart, they call themselves in Greece, Hesychasts. And Hesychia, Hesychia, is a word, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it correctly and it doesn't matter right now, you can find it in, on the internet. This word means appeasing, to find peace, to appease yourself. And therefore, even people doing Christian prayer, what was the purpose of doing the prayer of the heart 15 hours per day? The purpose was to reach appeasement, to reach the inner peace. And then from this inner peace, one can transcend to spirit. From inner peace, from an ocean of mind, which is like an ocean without waves, like a lake without ripples, like a mirror surface, the mind as a mirror surface, no thoughts, no agitation, just contemplation, just pure peace of contemplation. From that, then you can see spirit, because void, spirit, Atman, the Buddha nature, is just a step above that. It's like a sky above the waters. Here you have clear waters, here you have the sky above the waters. And from the water, you can see the sky. The sky and the water are just like the two steps there. And that is why Patanjali needs to show to us how we make the transition from mind 
to spirit and to be able to make the difference between this is mind and therefore it is prakriti still and this is spirit and it's not prakriti it's beyond prakriti it's transcendent spirit it is something which has the nature of the absolute even the mind which is appeased this ocean of mind is not yet atman is not yet the spirit but this ocean of mind is like the source of all the minds all the minds my mind and your mind and my 54 mind because we are not one mind we are 50 people in one gurdjieff said everybody is a sum of mini egos we are a lot of little egos a lot of little eyes sometimes i'm generous sometimes i'm depressed sometimes i am very motivated and i pledge myself to do this sometimes i become irresponsible and do all sorts of stupid things and these little personalities take over according to my mood according to what i eat according to my biorhythm according to astrological influences according to samskaras according to this and that and therefore i am not a person i am like 10 people living in the same head in the same body in the same skin and therefore not only that there are many minds because we are many but there are many minds in each and every one of us and the source of all these minds patanjali tells us yes all these separate minds are born from ego from the sense of ego but you should be aware he says that there is a unifying point where all these minds become one my 10 different personalities are like 10 waves on a pool but under there is the ocean there is the pool itself the water we are waves on an ocean but if we go a little bit deeper there exists just one ocean which unifies all of us the first unification is at the level of the mind to show this unification the yogis of india have called the shiva personality at the level of ajna ardhanarishvara it's shiva who is woman at the same time the yin and the yang meet already here they disappeared completely here so here they haven't disappeared but they are like one they are united shiva is shakti shakti is shiva shiva is half woman shakti has a male half ardhanarishvara half shiva half shakti which simply says here i reach unification even the male and the female even the yin and the yang as soon as you pass over ajna chakra they unify they end it all ends here that's where we have the last manifestation of polarity above already the polarity starts fading away and it ends and that is why at the level of ajna chakra we experience the first states of samadhi ramakrishna when he was asked about samadhi he didn't say that samadhi comes only from sahasrara he pointed to ajna chakra and he said when kundalini reaches this level there is only a thin veil separating atman from paramatman and one enters samadhi and many yogis say if you use the mantra aum which is a mantra of the third eye you enter samadhi paramahamsa yogananda says in kriya yoga if you focus on ajna chakra you are going to reach nirvikalpa samadhi and enter in samadhi and so on and therefore it shows that the states of samadhi already start at the level of ajna chakra and then the supreme ones 
are at the level of the crown chakra. So that is why, remember that the mind has a special function. The mind is the bridge between the universe and the pure consciousness, and it already has the function to give us oneness. I'm going to continue with what Patanjali says in the next lecture. We have reached at the sutra number five, in which Patanjali informs us of the existence of a differentiated mind, and at the same time of a unified mind, of a universal mind, of a common mind. Therefore, you yourselves remember that your mental power is a wave on an ocean. Your power is not the wave, but the ocean. Remember that all of you, you have access to an ocean of mind, which is practically infinite. We are all bathed in a common mind. We are all swimming in a collective mind, which is gigantic, which is a sort of cosmic mind, and this cosmic mind can feed us a lot. When you concentrate on Ajna Chakra, you get contact with that mind. When you do Laya Yoga with a mantra which you learned in the first month for Laya Yoga, it puts you in touch, among others, with this universal aspect of the mind, which feels always as an appeased mind, like an ocean without waves. Now we are concluding for this evening. We are concluding with a five-minute meditation on Ajna Chakra again to set, to let this information settle and to have it fixed deeply.